we didn't have those kind of cases here. You know, I've worked child deaths before, but this case was different. It was different. I was with that body alone for eight for eight hours, you know, and I actually prayed next to her and asked God, if you let me solve any case, please let it be this one. 25 years ago today, Jennifer Odom was dropped off at her bus stop. Seven days later, her body was found lying in a Spring Lake orange grove 12 miles from her Pasco County home. Her murder remains unsolved. Details of one of West Central Florida's most notorious cold cases are coming up on Sun Crime State. I'm Tony Holt, crime reporter for the Daytona Beach News Journal. Welcome to Sun Crime State, a weekly podcast that takes an in-depth look at Florida's biggest crime stories of the past and present. In this episode, I'll talk to South Florida Sun Sentinel reporter Ann Gegas, who was among the first journalists who responded to the scene Wednesday at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, where a gunman opened fire and killed 17 people. Later, I'll discuss the 1993 slaying of 12-year-old Jennifer Odom, who was abducted from her school bus stop in St. Joseph on February 19th, which led to a massive manhunt. One week later, her nude corpse was found in Spring Lake. It's a cold case that has taken an enormous emotional toll on numerous people, including the litany of investigators who've worked it. Among my special guests for that segment will be George Lloydgren, the cold case investigator now working the case, as well as retired homicide detective Carlos Douglas, who was one of the first assigned to it. Coming up, my interview with Anne and a recap of Wednesday's school massacre in South Florida. And it just rips you up because you see these young kids and you think they shouldn't be seeing things like this at their age. I've, I've never seen bodies in person, piles of bodies like they have. But I think to myself, how are they going to process this? I mean, will Valentine's Day always be an awful, awful day for them for their whole lives? You know, it won't be about love. It's going to be about hatred and carnage and the worst kind of trauma that I can't even have any words for. Mid-afternoon on Valentine's Day, all eyes turned to Parkland, a city less than 25 miles northwest of Fort Lauderdale, where 17 people were murdered and 14 injured after a gunman opened fire on campus at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School. The alleged gunman in the case, 19-year-old Nicholas Cruz, is suspected of arriving on campus in an Uber and entering one of the school buildings. He opened fire on students in the hallway using an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle. According to news reports, he also shot people inside five classrooms on the first and second floors of the freshman building. Police said Cruz got away by ditching his bulletproof vest, rifle, and ammo inside a stairwell and blended in with the fleeing students. The shootings occurred shortly after 2.15 p.m., as some parents were already on school grounds waiting to pick up their children. Officials said Cruz managed to leave campus and make it to a Walmart, bought a drink, and then stopped in a McDonald's. He was found walking down a neighborhood street shortly after 3.40 p.m. and arrested. In terms of death toll, only three school shootings in U.S. history have been more devastating than the one in Parkland. The 1927 Bath School disaster in Bath Township, Michigan. The 2007 campus shootings at Virginia Tech in Blacksburg, Virginia. And the 2012 school shooting at Sandy Hook Elementary in Newtown, Connecticut. In all those massacres, the shooter committed suicide. This time, the shooter was arrested without incident, according to police. Coconut Creek police officer Michael Leonard 
who arrested Cruz, described to the media how he encountered the suspect. As I traveled down one of the back roads, it's a heavily residential area. I happened to come across, it was just, just myself. There was not a lot of people out, a couple people walking their dogs in the area. Uh, as I continued down this roadway, I discovered an individual walking on the sidewalk that was wearing the clothing description that had been given over the radio. He looked like a typical high school student. Uh, and for a quick moment, I thought, could this be the person? Is this who I need to stop? Training kicked in. I pulled my vehicle over immediately, engaged the sub suspect. He complied with my commands and uh, was taken into custody without any, any issues. Prosecutors still had not officially charged Cruz as of Friday. He had his first court appearance Monday. Broward public defender Howard Finkelstein told the media that Cruz is prepared to plead guilty to avoid the death penalty. Finkelstein also said, quote, it's in nobody's best interest to go through a circus of a trial. Here is more from Sun Sentinel reporter Ann Gegis talking to me about what she saw when she arrived at the school's campus. Well, I was sent out to the scene as many first responders were heading there and they had this part blocked off so I had to park the car and right at the corner of where the the road that the school is off in the main road you just could see tons and tons of kids pouring out of this of this intersection and they're all stunned and hugging each other holding each other and some of them were crying some of them some of them were on their cell phones predictably Gegas got a lot more from the children than just quotes and facial expressions. A few of them pulled out their phones and showed her what they first saw after they filed outside. The other thing that struck me is that they immediately they had cell phone video of the actual carnage going up. So I could see that it was a big, I had no idea how huge it was when I first saw everyone pouring out because I was out of communication with the newsroom. It's like a 20 minute drive. But when they showed me some of the video that had already been going on, this is like less than 45 minutes after it had happened, when they, when they showed me the footage, I was like, oh my gosh, this is the big one. This, could, this is like Columbine proportions. And that really shocked me, to, just because they had actual bodies in this footage that was going around. Two days after the shooting, at 3 p.m. Friday, teachers and other faculty held a meeting at Parkland City Hall. Gegas was assigned to cover it. I think it was a big milestone in terms of, you know, how do we get back to normal? And it was just they, people seeing each other. They described their insomnia, hearing sirens. One woman told me she hadn't been able to cry yet. So we're getting, like, the stories about emotionally processing the event and, you know, just gr grieving, grieving, lots of grieving stories. You walked into the porch area and there was someone standing there with Kleenex ready for anyone who felt the emotion hit them and lots of hugs and lots of people talking about, you know, what symptoms they're experiencing in terms of the adrenaline hasn't worn off yet. They haven't been able to cry. They haven't been able to sleep. So they were sort of processing it as a group and comparing notes on what it was like to go through this. And it just really hits you in the gut and makes you think about how do humans, how are we shielded by the shock at first and how do we process it when it finally sinks in. The FBI announced Friday that it had received a tip about a disturbing YouTube clip comment posted by someone with the name of Nicholas Cruz. In his comment, the person stated he was going to become, quote, a professional school shooter. The FBI admitted it did not act properly on the tip. Attorney General Jeff Sessions ordered a review of the FBI and Department of Justice procedures in the wake of the news, and Governor Rick Scott on Friday called for Director Christopher Wray to resign. 
Wednesday's shooting also resulted in more calls for gun regulations. Many of those calls came from students themselves. Cruz legally purchased his AR-15 at a local gun store. An anti-gun rally was held Saturday in front of the federal courthouse in Fort Lauderdale. On Friday, President Donald Trump traveled to Broward County to visit with the victims who were injured in the shooting and praised the job of first responders and hospital officials. He declined to answer questions about gun regulations. U.S. Senator Marco Rubio a South Florida native and a Republican who has received millions of dollars of donations from the National Rifle Association, recently said that gun restrictions would not have prevented Wednesday's mass shooting. Coming up, the shocking story of a 12-year-old girl abducted 200 yards from her home 25 years ago today and found dead a week later near a stand of pine trees in rural Hernando County. Yeah, it affected me a lot, man. And, still, and, and to this day, it affects me, you know? But for me, the pain is still there as well as I'm sure the pain is still there for her mom, you know? So it never goes away. That was retired Hernando County Sheriff's Detective Carlos Douglas telling me how much the investigation into the killing of Jennifer Odom still haunts him long after he stepped away from the case. Odom, a 12-year-old 7th grader at Thomas E. Whiteman Middle School in Zephyr Hills, was abducted from her bus stop in St. Joseph and found one week later lying dead in an orange grove in Spring Lake. Her abduction occurred 25 years ago today. Jennifer got off the school bus around 2.40 p.m. Her stop was at the corner of Jessamine and Jim Denny Roads, about 200 yards from her house. She had been walking home alone down the Lime Rock Road from the bus stop for only a few weeks. Her mother instructed her to drop all of her belongings and zigzag through the orange groves along the road in the event she was ever confronted with danger. None of those belongings were found at or near the bus stop, and that gave investigators a strong indicator that Jennifer did not put up any kind of struggle, making it very possible she knew her attacker. Here is Jennifer's classmate, Jessica Floyd, describing to me the last time she saw her friend. I was one bus stop away from Jenny. She sat in the back of the bus. I sat in the middle. And she always sat with her best friend, Michelle Sample. And she got about to my seat and turned around and kind of made a call me sign and got off the bus. And that was the last time I saw her. Others on the bus said they saw Jennifer standing outside, waving to them. Then she turned and walked toward her house. As the bus pulled away, heading north on Jessamine, they noticed a faded blue pickup truck rolling down the street. Jennifer was expected to be the first one home that afternoon. Her younger sister, Jessica, had returned home from school later that afternoon, only to find the front door locked. She knocked, but no one answered. She went to a relative's house, fuming. She believed her older sister was playing a prank on her. Then around 4 p.m., Jessica called her mother, Renee Converse, telling her that Jennifer was not home. Her mother asked Jessica to check her sister's bedroom to see whether her books were there. They weren't. Renee immediately knew something was wrong. Friends and neighbors soon learned of the disappearance, too. I got a call from Margaret Nathy. She was she was my best friend. She went, um, I think at that time she went to a different school, but she knew that Jenny and I were close. And she called me and she said, Jenny's missing. Do you have any idea where she's at? And I said, no. And then I got a call from my neighbor um, who, who was significantly older. She was in high school at the time or just out of high school and said, did 
Jenny get off the bus with you or Michelle? And I said, no, she didn't. And they said, she's missing. I And obviously, you know, no idea what's going on at this time. But it, it, it was fast. It was very fast that it happened. The Pasco Sheriff's Office was called, and not long after that, a helicopter was dispatched, along with police dogs and a small battalion of deputies, who began combing the area. Jim Denny Road cut through about 20 acres of orange groves, so that's where the search party started. Then it got dark. Plans were quickly underway to return the next day in far larger numbers. It was 2 a.m. Saturday morning, and Renee Converse and her husband, Clark, who was Jennifer's stepfather, lay in bed in a state of hopelessness. They felt like they should be outside, searching, even though it was pitch black. They got little sleep, if any. The following day, nearly 400 law enforcement officers and volunteers blanketed East Pasco. It was a search that lasted for 10 hours on Saturday, February 20th. So much was donated to induce volunteers to keep searching, from portable toilets to bottled water and hamburgers. 12 square miles were searched, an area stretching from Wesley Chapel to Hernando County. The bus stop disappearance perplexed everyone in the community. Jennifer was well known and nobody suspected she would run away from home she wasn't the type. From the start, people were imbued with the worst fears imaginable. Students were interviewed by everyone, from local to state to federal investigators. The FBI got involved almost from the start. The kids on the bus all described the truck that was seen on Jim Denny Road. It may have had a ladder in the bed or pipes or some other tools piled high. Some thought it was a flatbed as opposed to the garden variety pickup, but everyone seemed to agree that it was blue and old. It was the strongest lead law enforcement had. Trucks were being stopped up and down the area. Lee Cannon, who was Pasco Sheriff at the time, expressed his frustration at chasing the one lead, telling a newspaper reporter, quote, We've stopped a lot of blue trucks in the last 24 hours, I can assure you. Remember, this is Pasco. Virtually everybody's got a pickup truck. St. Joseph is a very rural area. Orange groves are still prevalent there, but in 1993, they were everywhere. Finding Jennifer was going to be daunting. Every TV and newspaper outlet flashed numerous photos of Jennifer and a very specific description of her. She was 4 feet 10 inches tall, weighing 80 pounds, with brown eyes and brown hair. She was last seen wearing white jeans, a white turtleneck, a red sweater, black laced-up boots, and a white Hooters jacket. She was carrying a book bag full of textbooks and had a clarinet case. Her outfit, according to a story in the St. Petersburg Times, was carefully selected that Friday morning by Jennifer. The red sweater was cashmere, and it had never been worn. It was a Valentine's Day gift from her grandmother. Around her neck, she wore two charms on a gold chain. As for the clarinet, it didn't take long after she picked up the instrument that she became first chair in her middle school band. It was one of many indications of how accomplished of a young girl she was. She was a champion barefoot water skier, and one of the charms around her neck was a custom-made gold foot symbolizing her interest in the sport. She was also an honor roll student. She was bubbly and talkative. Her aunt told the media during a press conference days after her disappearance that Jennifer was about to explode. She was so full of life. The same aunt told reporters that her niece was so pretty and so energetic. She was the type of child anybody would want. And her family was overly protective of her because of that. So funky. She was the tiniest little person in the world and just so much personality and so much sass and 
the cutest thing you've ever seen in your life. And I just, I, I just, I adored her. I really did. She was a very cool girl. Really accomplished, barefoot skier. I mean, she, you know, she seemed like she just had a really fun life. For six nights and six days, Renee Converse looked out her window, hoping to see Jennifer traipsing across the yard, coming home. Clark had been angry at her that week for containing her emotions. Renee had not cried, not once. She spent most of the time on her rocking chair or pacing throughout her house. That glimmer of hope she clung to burned out on February 26th. Jennifer was found not far from a riding trail in Spring Lake, located in southern Hernando, about 12 miles northwest of the girl's St. Joseph home. A couple had found the body while scavenging the area, looking for aluminum and other scraps. The couple drove to the Hernando County Sheriff's Office building in Brooksville. A major, who was head of the major case unit, took four deputies with him, and followed the couple to the area where they had found the body. They sent word to Cannon and his chief deputy, Harold Sample. Sample's daughter, Michelle, was best friends with Jennifer. Word quickly spread about the discovery of the body. Throngs of media were stationed near Powell Road, a rural highway that runs east and west from Spring Lake to Spring Hill. Jennifer's body was found about 300 yards or so from the highway. Tony Mosca was the chairman of the Hernando County Board of Commissioners at that time. When he heard about a girl's body being discovered in Spring Lake, he felt the urge to drive there. I I believe I was in the commission office, and I got word that they found her off Powell Road. And uh, so I just, being uh, inquisitive, I went, went down there. She was in the woods about two, three hundred yards. Is all she was in off the road, off of a uh, a path where they do horseback riding. You could see where there were uh, tire marks where a vehicle was in there, and uh, that that's how I got I got on the scene. I was invited uh, to go into the scene and look for myself, but I uh, opted not to. Uh, number one, they didn't want to contaminate the crime scene any more than it already was. And because that's another person they have to eliminate when when uh, they, they're doing their forensics. So uh, I chose to stay on the road. I stood there with Tom Mylander, our sheriff at the time, and uh, he, he didn't even go back there uh, while I was there anyway. He let his uh, detectives do their work and the forensic team do their work. At that time, it still felt as though it was a Pasco case. Thomas Mylander, sheriff of Hernando County, only wanted a small number of detectives and forensic specialists from his agency in the woods near the body. They were assisting the Pasco detectives. But it didn't take long before it was discovered that Jennifer was likely killed in or near the very spot her body was discovered. It very quickly became a homicide case owned by the Hernando County Sheriff's Office. Carlos Douglas was among those few who investigated the scene. He was there longer than anyone, and the memories from that day are imprinted in his brain. He was basically man, you know, nude with one sock, I believe, on her left foot. Uh, The rest of her body was completely nude. Jennifer had died from blunt force trauma. Specific details, including what kind of weapon may have been used, have never been disclosed. A select group of law enforcement officers came and went, but Douglas stayed behind in that orange grove guarding Jennifer's body. He guessed he spent a total of eight hours at that crime scene. He told me the week Jennifer was missing was unusually chilly. Temperatures at night were at or below freezing. That cold air actually preserved the body, so very little, if any, decomposition could be seen. However, it had rained on and off throughout the week. One to two inches had fallen, which had an effect on the evidence gathering. 
but not all was lost, according to Hernando County Sheriff's Detective George Lloydgren, who handles the agency's cold cases and is the lead investigator in the Jennifer Odom murder. The agency still stores items that were recovered on that day in the hopes they could turn into something. I would say there is, yes. I'm not going to comment as to exactly what what is vital or what else is there, but <clears throat> and like in any scene, there's a you know you gather and collect everything. You don't know at the time what would be important and what would be a vital piece of evidence until maybe through investigations and further interviews, you find out that something became relevant that you might have thought wasn't at the time. You know, but through those interviews or further investigation, you discover and say, wow, that's relevant. Hey, we have that. Um, in this particular case, we, we do have evidence. We still have quite a lot of evidence. Jessica Floyd described to me how she got word about the body found in Spring Lake. I was at home, and my friend Margaret, again, called me, and she said that a detective had, that was close to her family called and said that the body had been discovered, and neither of us believed that this was accurate, and we didn't want to believe it. We actually, as 13-year-old kids, with three-way calling in the 90s, called this detective's direct number and just asked if it was true. And, you know, she she couldn't give us any information. I understand that now, but... Douglas could sense he wasn't at a typical murder-crime scene. Yeah, and at that time, that was probably one of the biggest news stories in the Tampa Bay area. But, uh, and you're right, it was real somber. It was somber from the time we walked up on it. And it wasn't long for the word to spread because, you know, like I say, uh, back then in Hernani County, we, that area wasn't really po- populated. The media were everywhere, but there wasn't a lot of noise. Deputies didn't speak. Even Mosca was uncharacteristically quiet. Everybody that was there uh, was very soft-spoken. It, you could you could hear a pin drop between words. It, it was not a a circus. Everybody there was very somber and very uh, um, and, and, and some were very emotional. The people that uh, um, found Jennifer were uh, speechless. They 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 would talk to the. Uh, police, uh, the, the sheriff, but they would not talk to anybody else. Uh, I know the news media was there, and they were clammed up, and uh, I was approached by uh, a couple of, of uh, news people that they know might get the gab. I'll, I'll talk to anybody, but in this particular case, I had nothing to say. Sample and Cannon had the worst task of the day. They showed up later to the Converse household. Renee had heard about the discovery of the body, but she didn't want to assume anything. Clark greeted the two men at the door. Then Sample walked inside and toward Renee, who sat frozen in her rocking chair. He kneeled down in front of her and took her hand. He told her the search was over. She asked him whether he was sure, and he nodded his head. It was at that moment that Renee finally wept. 1993 was one of the worst years in Hernando history in terms of violent crime. Homicides were in the double digits, which doesn't happen very often there. It was very unexpected in 1993 when the population was barely more than 110,000 residents. Douglas was one of only two homicide detectives at the time. Later, in 1993, the agency investigated a spate of murders involving elderly women. They were raped and killed in their homes, which were set on fire by their killer. The media called the serial murderer the Granny Killer. Douglas had to handle that one on top of other murders and on top of the Odom murder. In addition to all of that, he was inheriting the Odom case from Pasco. And that was challenging and frustrating. 
Well, that was frustration from the very beginning, and 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 you had those thoughts from the very beginning because you know anybody involved in investigating homicide know the first 24 hours are the most crucial time, and then you move from 24 hours to 48 hours. You know, whoever you know was responsible for this had a seven-day head start on. It was seven days, you know, from the time that she was missing until the time that uh, her body was located in Hernandez County. You know. You know, I know that was the sense of it because now it's ours. You know, we got to work. So, but the FBI and ATF and Pasco County, they had done so much on that investigation, had interviewed so many people. Now, do you backtrack? Do you go back and, and restep, you know, and, and, and redo everything they done? We didn't do that. You know, the powers to be at the time said, We'll take their word that this was done properly, that this person was interviewed, that this was done. The FBI interviewed some people, FDLE interviewed some people, Pasco County Sheriff's Office interviewed some people. For all of 1993, it seemed as though there wasn't a week that went by without a story in the St. Petersburg Times or the Tampa Tribune or Hernando Today about Jennifer Odom. That didn't change after the calendar year moved forward. As the case approached its one-year anniversary, it remained in the news. The Jennifer Odom case generated more than just media attention. It elicited public empathy. Jennifer was 12 when she was killed. She never got a driver's license, never donned a prom dress, never got to fill out a college application. She was abducted, presumably, right after being out of sight of her closest friends, steps from her bus stop, a parent's worst nightmare. She hadn't even been allowed to walk the 200 yards home by herself until that very semester of school. She may have even been within view of her own house when her killer grabbed her. Hernando County Sheriff Al Nienheis has been the county's top cop for six years. Before that, he spent 10 years as the second-in-command at the Pasco Sheriff's Office. Even though the Odom murder case predated him, he knows it well, and he knows how much it has consumed both agencies. Well, and I, I think it's exactly that. I think it's it's a 12-year-old girl. Um, you know, no indications we got that she was doing anything uh, that she should not have been doing. As a matter of fact, just to the contrary, you know, she was a water skier and, you know, just a, a very wholesome young girl. And, uh, and, and you have this happen to her. And I think the frustration, um, you know, from the community, not, not having anybody to hold accountable, and, you know, picturing your daughter or your niece or your next-door neighbor or whatever. We all have, you know, young, innocent girls uh, in our lives that, uh, you know, that we can kind of relate to and, and, and understand what the family and friends of Jennifer went through. And, and I think that just, you know, that's what's so heart-wrenching about it. The case went cold. But Carlos admits he was willing to take an unconventional approach in the hopes to heating it up again. When producers from the show Unsolved Mysteries contacted his agency in 1994 with the intention of profiling the case on the primetime show, he agreed. It wasn't going to be a straightforward segment about the unsolved murder. It was going to be a profile of a self-described psychic detective. It just so happened she would be looking at photos of the Odom killing. And that was still fine with Douglas. They contacted us because they knew we had this open investigation. Of course, you're going to jump on every little publicity you can get in a case like this. You know, this is a national syndicated show. It's going to be seen by millions of people. So we jumped on it. Uh, I'm not going to say I don't believe in that type of uh, investigation, you know, because, you know, it's proven fact that it's happened before. They have assisted in, in cases before. And supposedly, Miss Meyer has. So I'm like, hey, I'm, I'm in the ball game. You know, anything that may help us, you know, I had different opinions afterwards, you know, about certain things we did and tried. And, uh, you know, we got our, we got case out there on national television. Six years ago, while a reporter in Hernando County, 
I interviewed the psychic, Nancy Meyer, over the phone. She told me there was one deputy in particular, not Douglas, who wasn't being accommodating. She couldn't recall his name, but his objections of her being there were heard, and she wasn't allowed to look at some of the crime scene photos. They had to be turned over face down, but she was allowed to touch them. Meyer suggested a pair had killed Odom, perhaps some carnival workers who were in town in Pasco during the time of the murder. She thought they had cased the area of Jennifer's bus stop. She also said the two probably were going to kill again. Nothing came of Meyer's visit other than a stream of new tips that led nowhere. Months later, authorities got another lead, and it shocked everybody. 18 miles from where Jennifer's body was found, and 30 miles from where she was abducted, a couple scavenging the area of Nightwalker Road near Wikiwachi found a book bag containing items with Jennifer's name on them. Deputies were called. A few steps from the book bag lay the clarinet case. Yeah, that, that was uh, nearly two years, probably 18, 19 months later, it was discovered by some other people who were out <clears throat> I, I, scrapping as well in that area, and those items were recovered at that, at that scene, um, and it's quite a distance away from where she was recovered. I don't know the exact mileage, but probably about 15 miles away. The suspect knew the lay of the land. That was the conclusion investigators drew. The killer had to have been someone who knew how to navigate through the dense woods in and around Hernando. A fingerprint was taken off one of the items, but no match has been made. Detectives have tested some of those items in the hope of finding a DNA match, but those attempts have also come up empty. The discovery of the book bag and clarinet case, with the clarinet still inside, wound up being a mixed blessing for detectives. Now you think, okay, now these are her items all the way over here. How did they get here? Who comes to this place? Why did they drop them here? How did, you know, did they put them here? Did someone else bring them here? It, it just obviously complicates the investigation a little. I mean, on one hand, you recover items that you could gain and collect evidence from the items you have. On the other hand, now you're finding items that are at least 15 miles away from where she was. In 1998, it appeared the case had turned a corner. Two people were held for Jennifer's murder, Walter and Kimberly Ducharme. Catching up with Walter was a challenge. A manhunt was conducted in rural Maine. The bearded woodsman was finally caught and flown to the Brooksville jail. The case, which was largely reliant on Kimberly's admission statements and testimony, went before the grand jury. Kimberly had given statements to detectives. She gave more statements to prosecutors. Then she testified before the grand jury. Each and every statement she gave differed from the one before. Prosecutors believed she was lying, as did grand jurors. No indictments were filed. One of the prosecutors who handled that case was Rick Ridgway, who was now the second in command at the state attorney's office in the Fifth Judicial Circuit. He declined to take part in this podcast, but he told me in 2012, and again over the phone last week, that Kimberly Ducharme was devoid of credibility based on how she dramatically changed her story. It still seemed all traces of the Ducharme name hadn't been washed away when the last cold case detective oversaw the case. A picture of Kimberly was still hanging in one of the areas of the major case section a few years ago. Ridgway told me she is not considered part of the investigation, and neither is her estranged husband, but he emphasized that it's a law enforcement case, and he's not always in the loop. Lloydgren told me the investigation has now veered away from Walter Ducharme. Uh, no, I'm, I believe he is, I'm, to me, he is not a person of interest any longer. No, and uh, after the grand jury 
uh, investigation and they didn't indict him, I've read through that and listened to some other things and he is not a person of interest. I mean, I'm not caught up in the moment. You know, guys are working this case and you want to find the person responsible for this. So, you know, you, you work and you and you try to see if this, if you can believe, if you can interview people and ascertain the facts and prove those facts and, you know, through further investigation of corroborating statements and witnesses or any physical evidence, whatever you have, that you want to make a good, solid case, on, you know, to get the truth. So, uh, is the is the bottom line. So, if in doing that, and you start investigating somebody and it's just not coming together, then you probably don't have the truth. And when everything falls apart in the case, and I think that's, or in that particular suspect, I think that's what happened. Uh, and they tried to go forward in him with that investigation, but uh, I believe, obviously, if someone's not credible on, in the beginning, it's hard to even move past that. Carlos Douglas feels very differently than Ridgway and Lloydgren, and he was candid with me about that. Those individuals didn't sit across from a table from him, okay? Those individuals didn't see a suit that he had laid out on his house in Maine with a letter that said, God, please forgive me for what I did in Florida. Those people didn't see some of the things that I've seen in the Kimberly Ducharme investigation. With the things I found in her cell, the things she told her parents in a room that was bugged and microphone that she nor her parents knew nothing about. The debate between those in the Ducharme is guilty camp and those in the other camp eventually led to Douglas stepping away from the investigation. Well, I guess it's safe to say then, Carlos, that you're not on board with the idea of Ducharme's history. Don't don't look at him. You think there's something there. Let me tell you something. I stopped working that case because of that. Because I couldn't look at nobody else and, and put 100% investigation into it. I couldn't do it. Walter Ducharme's whereabouts are not known. Kimberly Ducharme, who served time for felony child abuse, changed her name and left town. Nienheis has reviewed a lot of documents related to the Odom case. Persons of interest have been added to the list and removed. No one has emerged from the pack. It's been an exercise in futility. It's frustrating because there are, over the years, if you read through the reports, and I've read through a lot of them, I've probably read through hundreds of pages of reports myself uh, here in Hernando County, and um, over the years there have been some very, very, very good suspects. So when you read the report, you say to yourself, that has got to be the person who did this, until you go on to the next report, and then you think, oh man, that's that's even a better uh, suspect. And, um, and, and I think that's frustrating from the law enforcement perspective is... Uh, for many, many years, uh, there wasn't a real clear standout suspect, and, and that was frustrating. And as I said, I think we've, we've gotten closer recently, but we're still not anywhere near ready to make an arrest. The fact that no one has been arrested after 25 years has been a cruel blow to those who vowed to catch Jennifer's killer, as well as those who knew her and had hoped for an arrest and conviction by now. I, I don't even know, there are no words for how maddening it is. There are no words because you feel like because it is such a small town, someone knows something, you know, people saw things. Modern technology is what it is. And there there are all these leads and, you know, and, and, and every couple years someone gets your hopes up and, and you think, that this is it, this is really gonna happen, this is gonna change, this is, we're going to figure this out as a town, as a community, as a whole, and it doesn't, and it, it just, it breaks your heart all over again. The case has never been put on hold. Those at the sheriff's office don't like to refer to it as a cold case, simply because that indicates it isn't being worked. Every now and again, word spreads of something happening during the course of the investigation. 
and there's always a media story about it. Nienhuis acknowledged that new developments have given investigators renewed hope. You know, I think in recent years there's been some developments in the case that are uh, intriguing and exciting, uh, but we still have a long way to go to actually, because if we make a case, we want to make it stick, you know, and um, we want to do it right. And uh, so we're, we're, we're plotting through that. And so I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that we'll eventually make an arrest. In June 2013, Lake Javita in San Antonio, a small community in Pasco about three miles south of St. Joseph, was searched by a dive team. After two days of wading through the hydrilla plants, whatever clues were suspected of being at the bottom of that lake were never recovered. A couple years ago, authorities identified a man linked to an unsolved attempted murder case in Pasco County, which occurred on January 16, 1992, 13 months prior to the murder of Jennifer Odom. 17-year-old Carolyn Murray was abducted after she got off her school bus. She had been attacked with a blunt object, causing brain damage. She was left for dead behind a vacant house in Holiday, located 40 miles west of St. Joseph. Crum was caught recently by using familial DNA searching. Investigators were able to link DNA from semen left at the scene with that of Crum's son. That led them to Crum's father. Crum Sr. is awaiting trial for the Murray case. Murray, who's now in her 40s, is in a full-time care facility in Brooklyn, New York. Media reported on Crum's arrest, and many of them linked him to the Odom case. Lloydgren was succinct when he talked to me about Crum's possible involvement in Jennifer's killing. He is a person of interest, and I am uh, actively working that. Nienhuis also encouraged people to temper their expectations, but he, too, admitted that Crumb is now part of the investigation. And, of course, I will tell you that um, anybody who commits a crime, even in Seattle, Washington, that's similar to this, uh, is going to be a person of interest in our case. Um, so, you know, I don't want to give away too much information, obviously investigative information, but we are certainly, uh, you know, there, there's really nobody that's been ruled out. And as I said, there's been some developments that have given us a little glimmer of hope. Um, and we're hoping uh, that, you know, someday, if, if, if we're fortunate, you know, in the, in the not-too-distant future, we'll, you know, we'll get a break in the case either through evidence or through some other means and um, be able to develop probable cause to, you know, charge somebody. Uh, and that would, that would obviously be our ultimate goal, and we'd be elated with that. Uh, but we still have a long way to go. Uh, it's not something that's going to happen in, you know, in the next few days, weeks, or probably even months. An arrest won't eliminate the sadness that engulfed a two-county radius on February 26, 1993. The wounds are still raw for everyone who was close to Jennifer. Her mother, Renee Converse, did not return a message seeking participation in this podcast. She has significantly reduced the number of media appearances during the past several years. Jessica Floyd agreed to speak to me, but was reluctant. She still gets very emotional when the subject of Jennifer is brought up. Now a mother herself, she is still haunted by the thought of a 12-year-old girl close to her being snatched from her bus stop and slain. I don't let my daughter go anywhere without me being sent feet behind her. So it's made you a much more protective person. Yeah. Yeah. It changed the full tale. You know, we grew up living in a really remote area in Blanton to where we lit we had alarm systems. We had locks on our doors, but we just, we didn't even, we didn't do it. We didn't lock our doors at night. <laughs> And to think that this can happen this close to somebody that you know so well and is so loved. 
it changed everything. It changed everything. We, you know, you, you think you're in this bubble, in this country life, in this atmosphere, and everybody loves everybody, and everybody knows everyone, and. It was just, it was shocking. Shocking is still the word I would use. It was shocking. Arresting a suspect for this case would be one of the most gratifying victories for Neen Heiss, whose law enforcement career has spanned nearly 30 years. Oh, I mean, that, you can't, there is no case that's bigger than a uh, a murder case and there's no murder case i don't think that's bigger than the murder of a young child and uh, maybe not so much for the public because a lot of the people who you know uh, may be reading stories about jennifer or listening to uh, you know podcasts or watching tv stories a lot of them may not have even been born uh, or were too young to remember um, the story uh, but nonetheless, um, when you live in law enforcement, there is there's no more greater gratification than than locking up somebody for taking another person's life, particularly if that person is an is an, is as innocent as a 12 year old little girl getting off the bus. So um, I will tell you, it will be um, immense satisfaction if we're able to charge this person. Today marks the 25th anniversary of Odom's abduction and murder. And Jessica always thinks of Jennifer's family on this day. It's a tough one for her to get through, too. And she turns to her faith on every February 19th. Just say my prayers. That's all I ever do is just say my prayers. Pray that they find peace. Anyone with information about the murder of Jennifer Odom is urged to call the Hernando County Sheriff's Office at 352-754-6830 or call Crime Stoppers at 1-866-990-8477. Thank you for listening. Tune in next week when we will discuss the 2008 double murder inside a beachside crack house in Daytona Beach. Among my guests for that episode will be News Journal Justice reporter Frank Fernandez. Join us then. You can find Tony on Twitter at TonyCrimeWriter or email him at Tony.Holt at news-jrnl.com. Be sure to rate us on iTunes. Sun Crime State is recorded by Tony Holt and produced by Chris Bridges for the Daytona Beach News Journal. 